In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. For today's episode, we're going to jump into a wide range of topics ranging from urban development to architects and architecture with Lloyd Alter. Lloyd is a design editor for Treehugger. In addition to his resume of being an architect, developer, inventor, and prefab promoter, Lloyd contributes to MNN.com, The Guardian, Azure, and Corporate Nights Magazine, and is an adjunct professor teaching sustainable design at Ryerson University School of Interior Design. Lloyd is also past president of the Architectural Conservatory of Ontario. Lloyd, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I had a chance to hear Lloyd speak at a sustainability conference in Calgary a few years ago and then later had a chance to chauffeur him up to the airport to drop him off at a at another curb at another airport. And uh, I was always intrigued. I, I loved Lloyd's presentation at the conference and the, and the time we had in the car up to the airport was way too short. And so really grateful to have Lloyd back on the show. Lloyd, the world wants to know how you ended up with one of the most well-known voices on using less through better design. So tell us your story. Well, I originally became an architect because, frankly, my mother wanted me to be an architect. I wanted to go into <laughs> other fields, but nobody went into computers then. It was just for real nerds, which is where I wanted to be. And I ended up as an architect and wasn't very good at it. I didn't like the buildings that I designed and never liked driving by them. And it was getting very hard to get across town. So I actually, one of my biggest clients asked if he knew if I knew anyone who would be a developer for him. And I said, yes, me. So I became a real estate developer in the 90s and did a number of very successful condos. And at the beginning of the of this century, basically for stories I won't get into, I decided not to be part of that world anymore. And I wanted to figure out how to build better. There was one thing I learned as an architect and a developer was that the construction industry was just a mess, that we were building in ways that we'd been building for a hundred years, that the quality was awful. And I was completely obsessed with the fact that we could do a better job in factories doing prefabrication. And I talked myself into a job with Canada's biggest modular builder, where I was going to hire the best architects from around North America to do models that we could sell to people who wanted really good designs. Because every time architects do something, they do it once instead of repeating it and refining it. I wanted to make it more like industrial design, where with practice, every iteration gets better. Now, this was in about 2002, and nobody knew much about prefabrication, so I started writing about it on the internet. And before the days of blogs, I would sit there and encode in HTML, add everyday information so people would come and see it. And it basically became a proto-blog. It was very popular. I was quickly recognized as one of the authorities on prefab on the internet because I was the only person writing about prefab on the internet at the time. And in 2004, this little website started called Treehugger, which I saw, and I started sending them tips. And they said, why are you sending these to us? I said, well, you talk about green, and I can't talk about that in my blog. So I say, okay. And then after a little while, they say, why don't we pay you for these tips? And I said, okay. They started paying me a little bit. And the prefabs were going very, very slowly. You know, it turns out you can't build in Ontario and sell around North America. You can build in Ontario and sell in Ontario. And so it was going slowly. And meanwhile, the writing was getting more and more interesting and more and more fun. And one day the founder of Treehugger called me up and said, we want you to write full time for us. Here's a career for you in writing. And I just thought, wow, this is great. 
don't need to fight with clients anymore. Like my mistakes can just fall off the bottom of the screen. I like <laughs> this. I like this a lot. And what he was doing, what was interesting, what he was doing is he'd been running this virtual company with no employees and everybody was nosing around looking at the company and he realized I don't have any employees. So he was basically hiring me and one other writer and a new president. So he'd have something to sell and which he promptly did for $10 million. And that's how I became a writer. And subsequently, when Discovery got tired of owning us, I became the editor of the whole site, essentially being the last man standing. And so that's how I got to where I was from architecture to development to prefab to this. Wow. So do you consider yourself an architect still or do you consider yourself a writer now? I think when you go through architecture school, you always consider yourself an architect. Legally, I don't think I'm even allowed to use the term, but because I am legally retired from architecture, but I consider myself an architectural critic, an architectural analyst, and a writer. Yes. Yeah, so that, that brings up the skateboarding analogy. Skateboarders never die, they just roll slower, right? Architects never go away, they just draw different drawings. <laughs> right. But there's a huge mess. There's a huge message in what Lloyd just said, and that is for architects looking in the mirror can sometimes be painful, yes. <laughs> right? Having to drive by your old projects and and wish you could do that again. Well, the nice thing about the Toronto booming construction market is that, you know, in Britain, there's this thing called the Rubble Club, which you know, if, you're, if you're an architect, you get to join the Rubble Club if one of your buildings is demolished during your lifetime. Because historically, historically <laughs> most buildings weren't even finished during an architect's lifetime. And, you know, if there was a Canadian Rubble Club, I would be a charter member because the real estate market is moves so quickly that almost every non-residential building that I designed is either going or gone. And so it's getting easier for me to get across town. So that's interesting because you sound a little bit like me in a way, and I don't wish that on anyone, but I've been, since I started work, I've been frustrated by the existing infrastructure and attitudes. It never seems to change. There's a very little evolution in our business. And yeah, the question is, something's got to give here. Now, we live in a great time with the internet and open source information and thoughts. So this, for me, is the sweet spot where people like yourself can have a platform, like Tree Hugger, right? Get your views out there. Hopefully, young people coming into the business are not completely conditioned like they used to be, and things can start to change. That's my, that's my optimistic view, actually, quite frankly, that young people are not going to put up with the BS that came before them. And they will change things. Do you do you subscribe to that at all? Oh, I absolutely do. The, you know, when I started writing about prefabrication, the speed at which the the information was disseminated and the interest from all over North America was incredible. People looked at it, they got it, they wanted it, but I couldn't deliver it in California because it was made here. But the knowledge spreads very quickly, and people are learning things that were really previously pretty obscure. I just this morning wrote a post about a prefab called the Wee House by uh, an architect named Jeffrey Warner in uh, Minneapolis. And I first wrote about him in 2004. And he designed this little Wee House then. And now he just won an award for a Wee House that almost looks the same, but it's for uh, the vice president in charge of store design for Apple, who wanted an icon, who wanted something that was refined and polished and worked out. And this is what always was my dream of prefabrication, that this was what would happen. And Jeffrey Warner had the attention span and the patience to last long enough to see a director of design for Apple computers buy one of his houses. And that's and it's a beauty, and it is a gem, and it is polished, and that's the way it should be. But it, it, the architecture hasn't traditionally worked that way, and people didn't have enough knowledge or didn't want to pay enough money to get it done right. I'm sure you find that all the time in your profession. Oh, absolutely. It is, it's depressing. I actually believe that yeah, we're baby boomers, right? So we grew up, our demographic changed everything because there were just so many of us, right? Which is, I, I, my personal theory is, our demographic created this boom in houses, you know, so you could buy a house, be a complete dummy and make a million dollars, right? 
If you bought a house as a as a bricklayer in Vancouver and then sat in it for 25 years, you're a multimillionaire for no good reason, right? I actually think our children, my children and their children, the thought of buying a house that goes up in value will just be unbelievable to them because as our generation goes away and the demographics move back to some sort of normal, you know, the housing demand's going to change. And I think that's when you're going to see the demand for real quality housing rather than tracked housing. I mean, at the moment where I live in Toronto, you can build any piece of shit and it just sells. And uh, you're allowed to swear on this podcast, by the way, FYI. (laughs) So, you know, I I think change is coming. But when that change comes, you're going to really have this discrimination between it'll be like buying a car. If you want a BMW, you're going to have one. And if you want something else, like a Chevy, you're going to have one, right? And there's going to be a known differential in quality. And a price for that. That's my view. But I think, you know, we got a way to go before we get there. I still think that North America, everybody suffers from what I call square foot-itis. You know, how much it costs per square foot. And you, can, I can, you can't seem to say, no, you know, maybe you want a better insulated wall. And all they care about is, no, I want to pay less now. And we have to change that mindset. And it's a slow slog. I thought in 2008 that there would be a flight to quality then, that people would realize after the recession, we've got to buy stuff that lasts to get real value for our money instead of buying disposable stuff. No, they just wanted it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And they were selling houses for 50 bucks a square foot. You can imagine the quality of them. Uh, I'm still concerned that we're obsessed with that. I agree, actually. I I actually think, you know, the cure for high prices is high prices. You let the prices go to a ridiculous level. And then what that opens up is an opportunity for prefab where you can, they sell on the benefit of being super designed and affordable, right? That's a killer combination. Well, you're seeing in the States a big resurgence in prefabrication because the cost of normal construction, you know, contractors won't get out of bed for less than a million dollars. You know, there's just, and with the current American government uh, throwing everybody out, you know, all of California was basically built by undocumented labor. So they have a huge problem there of finding people to actually build houses now. So you're seeing more and more of an interest in prefabrication, which is exactly what happened in 2005 and 2006. And in 2008, every single prefab company I can think of went bankrupt because it's just this incredible up and down cycle. It's in ba- it's very hard to compete with a guy with a pickup truck and a nail gun. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's what it comes down to in many cases. It's the, it's two different operators. There's the, the tradesman who gets up in the morning and his sense of security comes from the fact that he can use the tools. And then there's the, then there's the trades guy that owns a business and he's a businessman and he gets a sense of security from profitability, which comes from optimized systems, right? And so we live in a world where there's the business person that owns the trades and then there's the tradesman that owns the trades. And there's always that conflict. And I think until we train tradesmen about the art of running businesses, we'll never get rid of the on-site constructed processes. I think it's one of the inherent problems that we have. It's a cultural issue. Yes. It's a, there's also path dependency, right? So systems don't change until the money runs out. There has to be collapse, quite frankly. Look at Greece, for example, right? So just to bring a little bit of politics in here, you know, Greece was a beneficiary of joining the EU, money piled in, they spent it, and then the money runs out. So there was no planning, the money stopped. Guess what happened? People didn't get paid and people lost their pensions. So something has to go bad before it can come back, you know? If it, if it muddles along, it never changes. So this is why I'm a big fan of property boom in a way, like a mega boom where it just blows up so much, things become unaffordable and change has to come. Yes, and we're beginning to see that. We're beginning to see, I think we'll see again, more government intervention in building housing. Zoning changes to allow more multifamily housing are becoming controversial, but they're happening in a lot of cities. And so change, I think, will come out of this. I, I think a big investment theme actually is uh, there's a trend now to build to rent for the big developers. That They can see that wave forming, if you like, already. So where do you see that happening? I mean, there's, there's at some point, let's take, for example, Vancouver, where you have, if you go back you know, 20, 25 years ago, when the booms really started to develop, you had 
children who became 18, 19, went to school, got out of school, and then no longer can afford the properties. And then part of that was the influx of foreign cash. Right. So, so we've been talking about all this development and whatever, but where does the foreign cash fit into this picture? Because that is a huge influence, as it has been in Toronto. Well, I don't believe it's been a huge influence in Toronto. I think it's been highly overrated. There's mm. a huge amount of immigration coming to Toronto because it's where the jobs are, which is creating the pressure. And it's created a different kind of housing. People are now designing condos with multiple bedrooms to raise kids. The city did a huge program of planning guidelines. They're starting to insist on a certain amount of family accommodation. And so you're seeing the housing market change. There's also huge amount of pressure on the main streets to allow more development. So changes are happening to meet demand. And I think that's the most important thing. Another thing that I think is going to be hugely influential is the recent change to allow six stories in wood construction. Mm. Because what that means is that where Main Street construction before, you wanted to go 20 stories to get the economics out of concrete. The economics change when you can build out of wood in six stories without parking underneath, which they're now allowing. Suddenly, it's lighter and it's faster, and you're beginning to see a lot of it. I think that the first wave of it is going to be disastrous. I think they're throwing it up too quickly. They're not being very careful. I think there's going to be noise problems and smell problems. I just got back from the UK where I saw how they do it there in mass timber and how careful they are about those issues of noise and smell. And I think the first wave of them are going to be really problematic here. But I think after a few years, they'll get it and it will be a real change in the way we built the city. Right now, it's hugely dense because the only place they're allowed to build are former industrial lands or the NIMBYs all go crazy on it. So you get it all concentrated in the railway lands and the industrial lands and the port lands where there are no neighbors. But that's going to have to change. We're going to have to build out the main streets where the subways are running, where the streetcars are running, and it's all still two stories. That's so. Do you see wood construction having the biggest impact on residential or commercial? I think, I think residential. What I see in commercial, it's not a whole lot cheaper. When you look at what they did in the T3 building in Minneapolis, in Michael Green's big building, they did it because the developer wanted that wood look that the high-tech people love. They are basically imitating old warehouses. They want that old warehouse look, and they're paying as much as they would in conventional construction to get it. Right now, with a lot of that, I think it's great. I think wood sequesters carbon that we should be building out of wood. They're doing it because it's fashionable right now in the warehouses. I think the real impact is going to be in the residential because it will make sort of what I always called the Goldilocks density economically viable. Other people, I called it the Goldilocks density because it's high enough to support transit, restaurants, local bars, commercial life, but it's not so high that you fall into anonymity, that the fire Mm. trucks can't pick you off, that you don't get to know your neighbors. I called it the Goldilocks density just right. Everybody else is now calling it the missing middle where you you got the high rises, you got the single family, but whatever happened to the triplexes and the quadruplexes and the low rise apartments? I mean, what I love looking at is uh, you live in Calgary, that the densest part of your city in Calgary is the Mission District, all the old walk-up apartments and the hundred-year-old houses. And they also... They use the least amount of energy per capita of any other area as well because people are living with shared walls in small spaces. Mm. And that's the direction that we have to be going into. Smaller spaces, shared walls, walkable areas. You're describing Copenhagen. You realize that, hey, Lloyd? Yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's been, a, that's been a huge model for you know, development. And you're, you've got a strong voice in, in the world of urban development. What do you think are the advantages or, or what can we learn from the Danes? Well, in 1974, everybody in the world, the Danes, the North Americans, everyone hit an oil crisis. Everybody suddenly had a problem that they had to deal with. What are we going to do with cars? And what the Danes did in 74 is started saying, 
we've got to promote bicycles. It was not instant. It was not historic. They all drove as much as we did. But they started 35 years ago promoting bicycles as an alternative and building cycle tracks and dealing with their car regulations so that cars were actually responsible if they hit someone, just made it a bicycle-based economy. And not everybody cycles. They're only at 50%, but we're at like 5% or 4%, where I live in downtown Toronto, maybe 6%. They, by doing that, it made possible for A, not to have the city overwhelmed with cars. B, they continuously, whenever they build, build at that, what I call the Goldilocks density or the missing middle. You know, you go out now to the whole areas north of the city where they just took over the shipyards, all six and seven story buildings, really nice buildings, full of families. They just take it for granted that's how you live. In Vienna, where I was this year for a Passive House conference, they, they have a new development, like they turned this airport into a housing development. First thing they do, ram the subway out to it. So it's got good access right out there. Second thing they do, build the buildings, all seven stories. Their building code is really interesting. You go into them and you think, wow, this building has one stair in the middle, an open stair, all the apartments opening up into this. How is this safe? You know, all of our buildings have long corridors, two stairways. And I talked to architects and said the building code changes at eight stories. Our fire trucks can go up to eight stories. Every unit has to have a balcony. If they can't go down the stair, they go out to the balcony. They're safe there for the amount of time it takes for us to come and pick them off the balcony. Totally different attitude to North America, which is you're on your own, head for those fire stairs and get up as fast as you can. And, you know, frankly, after Grenville, which had one stair and was designed on the principle, stay in your units, we'll rescue you, not assuming the fire was going to come from the outside instead of the inside. You see the failure of that. But it was a much taller building. And all of their buildings are sprinklered, which Grenville was not. Grenville was of such a scale, right? That was the other thing, right? The scale of that fire was just enormous. Tragic. But that's interesting. So the... See, again, my big thing is buildings are actually a cultural phenomenon, right? So there is a culture in North America of individualism, which permeates everything, even the building code. And there's a culture of more, I don't know, socialised risk, let's say, in Europe. And that manifests in the building code. It's amazing, right? This culture goes everywhere. It manifests itself everywhere. Well, I mean, the greatest manifestation of it all is Elon Musk, who just this week got in a lot of trouble when he was asked why he was developing this whole boring company and building tunnels under Los Angeles that you could put his car on skates. He actually told Wired Magazine, oh, I hate transit. I hate sharing with other people being on the same thing. There might be a serial killer behind you. He said all of these (laughs) things. Jared Walker, the well-known urban transit expert said, you just don't know anything about transit. It doesn't have to be that. And Elon Musk called him an idiot. And there's a tweet, you're an idiot. And so now this whole war is opened up between those who hate public transit and sharing space. If you look at the comments on my post on it, person after person, ew, you get in a bus and you're next to someone who's smelly and dirty and you catch the flu and Americans love their own little bubble separate from everyone else. And they love their single family house separate from everyone else. And they want to drive their car into the garage and never have to go outside of one bubble to the other bubble. They don't go to movies. They have the home theater in their basement. And that's just the way the society has gone. I mean, yeah. The biggest threat to Elon Musk is probably the car business coming after him, trying to assassinate him. You know, if I was him, I wouldn't go on public transport. There's so many people angry with me. But he's a Canadian as well, let's not forget. God bless him. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) yes. Well, is he really? I thought he was born in South Africa. He went to Queens to university here, but is he really? His his origin story is he did high school in South Africa, but his mother was Canadian. So then Ah. he got his passport, went to Queens, but he was always wanting to go to the States. So he's dual, I think, now. He's a Canadian and an American. But I don't blame him for wanting to be in a bubble. If I had so many angry people after me like he has, I'd want to be in a bubble. (laughs) 
Well, right. I mean, I, I always show a picture of him from the launch of his shingles, his solar shingles uh, last year, where he's standing in front and the headline on top is the future we want. And so it's got a big solar, fa- a big, beautiful single family house with solar shingles, with a power wall battery on the wall and two Teslas in the garage. Yeah. And yeah. I just looked at that and said, that may be the future we want, but it doesn't scale. It's really expensive and only a tiny, tiny fraction of the population population can get it. My response to it always is, what is the future, not that we want, but the future we need? And as far as I'm concerned, switching cars from gasoline or diesel to electric only solves one part of the problem. It doesn't solve congestion. It doesn't solve parking. It doesn't solve the whole urban sprawl issue. And so then he says, oh, well, if it's autonomous cars, uh, they'll be shared, but they won't be shared. They'll be just basically a way of increasing sprawl because now you can have a martini while your car is taking you home and watch a movie instead. Instead of actually concentrating on the whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't that not a bad thing or? (laughs) You know, if it happens in Toronto, Toronto (laughs) is surrounded by the some of the most productive farmland in all of Canada. And yet we just continue, continue to pave it over. The current government put in a green belt. The minute the green belt disappears, when the conservatives come back in power, it'll all be zoned single family. And this will just continue in sprawl because... It's popular. And if people have a self-driving car, that's going to be popular. And this thing that everybody says, oh, they'll be shared is a fantasy. It's like, why do people have home theaters instead of going to the movies? They only use the home theater for 2% of the time, and yet they invest in it because they want that private bubble. They're not going to share self-driving cars. They're going to want their own. I've got uh, three children. They're all sort of in their low 20s. And one's 18, but they're in their 20s. They don't want what us baby boomers wanted. My kids can drive. They don't want a car. They're not interested in it. They live in downtown areas and they and they Uber everywhere. And you know their desire is not for a four bedroom white picket fence Mac mansion. It's interesting, right? So my optimism, I share what I hear what you're saying. And if it was baby boomers, I'd agree with you. But I think the generation coming through have a completely different value set, and they think. We're a bunch of morons, quite frankly. I honestly, honestly hope you're right. I see a lot of demographic guys saying, you know, it's just their age. Just look what happens when they have two kids. They're going to want the car. Now, I see lots of people on downtown Toronto riding with their kids in cargo bikes in the front of the big big feet bikes. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. Then I drive through Thornhill. I was in Thornhill, north of Toronto, visiting part of my family on, on Sunday. And, you know, every house is a big house with a double garage with two SUVs and everyone, and they cannot buy a quart of milk, but that's how they want to live. So, you know, your kids and my kids, my son won't get a driver's license. My daughter has one, but yes, but I still, I worry we're in the minority. Could be, could be. I, uh, you know, I hear you. I I noticed that moving from the UK to here, the car culture here is strong, super strong. And even me, who was sort of half ready for that, was shocked by how strong the car culture is here. But a lot of that is to do with the urban sprawl and the grid system and everything, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you live downtown, I never drive. I hate it. I get upset when I get stuck in traffic. I don't want to pay for the parking. And I love my bike, and I bike year-round. You know, like you, I'm a baby boomer of a certain age, and it makes me feel healthy and young and you know, on top of things when I'm on my bike. It's, but it's hard yeah. sometimes. When you it get is, older. and yeah, doing the right yeah. thing is hard as well. I don't know. I'm with you. I'm optimistic just based on the empirical observations I've had with my kids. But you're right. As they grow up, you know the old saying, right? If you're young and you're not a liberal, then you've got no heart. And if you're old and a conservative, you're a brain dead. Yes. Got no heart, no head. Yes, I remember so, that. So, you know, my kids will change for sure, I guess, when they settle down and have children. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm optimistic on that front just because I think they are so aware of the errors that the baby boomers made and still making. And they're not frightened to speak to power, right? And the internet is a big factor in that. So I am optimistic in the long run, but in the short run, it's a bit depressing, I have to say. <laughs> 
I wrote a, I wrote a series of articles before the American election. I predicted that Trump was going to win, and I did it on the basis of following the Brexit vote in the UK really closely, where the Brexit vote was lost because the young people didn't turn out. When you looked at the proportion of the young people who turned out, it was at half the rate of their parents' generation. And I wrote a month before the election, if Americans don't pay attention, the exact thing's going to happen. And it did. Now, what I'm hoping now is that there is such revulsion and such revolt against this that it won't happen again, that the, that the millennial generation will actually ride up, rise up and throw us all out. It's really the sooner it happens, the better. I I agree with that. And but I think our the the generation coming up are so disgusted with the horrific politicians that are out there that they're sort of abdicating their responsibility. And I think the answer to that, and this is a, probably another discussion, is blockchain. When people can vote, and their vote isn't manipulated or able to be manipulated, and blockchain is probably the only way to do that, then you're going to see real change. But politicians will die before they let that happen. Adam, maybe describe to our listeners what blockchain is Yeah, so blockchain is, is the technology that underlies, um, underlies uh, cryptocurrency. So basically what it is is a distributed ledger. It's the opposite of Google, where Google aggregates everything in a single spot. Blockchain has the same information spread across multiple, multiple databases and computers, and then there's an algorithm set that verifies everything, and all the different distributed ledgers have to agree, and then it's like amber forming over an insect. They all agree, and then another layer of transactions goes over that, and then they all agree, and, and then you can't go down and change things. That's actually a very, very good explanation. I've been trying to understand it <laughs> for a couple of months and been writing about it, but that was very well now, put. The, the good, there's good news and bad news for that. Good news is it can really change things. The bad news is it can really change things, and people resist change like crazy, particularly if you're invested in what's going on now. I'm a big student of Romans. I'm a big fan of Romans, engineers with spears, right? But... You know, what did they used to say? Uh, you always have to ask who benefits, which is the same way of saying follow the money. If you want to know why something's not changing, just follow that money and you'll have your answer. We're going to see blockchain become very big, I believe, in green building in that, you know, we're always talking about what is the provenance of this? How serious are they about green building? You'll be able to go right back to the source, to the very tree that gets chopped to see was this sustainably harvested without having like FSC and SFI and third-party certification of everything. It can all be sort of peer-reviewed every step of the way. Someone puts it on, it gets verified, and then you've got a consistent record from the clay that goes into the brick to the tree. You'll have a record when you buy your house of everything all through. It's going to be brilliant technology, I believe, that will become part of everything. A food chain, the building chain, all of this will be part of this ledger of everything, as it's been called. I absolutely agree with that. But I think that you know, power is made and held by concentrating things in certain places, right? And let's take the construction industry. Power is held and concentrated in several places, with massive path dependency. You know, getting a union guy to do something like to support prefab, why would he do that? His job, he benefits completely from the system that's there now, right? Same with contractors, same with designers. So it's going to take people like the generation behind us to come in and just ignore what's going on now and do something else, right? Aggregation is the power here. When you can influence aggregate demand, this is how elections get bought and sold on Facebook, right? This is how you can change things. So again, I'm optimistic that the lack of reverence to power and the lack of appetite for bullshit of young people is going to change things. And blockchain, I think, is going to be the enabling technology for that. Now, these are all big theme things, right? So I agree completely. Yeah. Um, but And I'm also a crazy old white man, remember that. But yeah, that's where we're going with that, I think. But um, that, so prefabs, I couldn't agree more. I think prefabs are the... Of the future, and I, I saw one of your blogs about getting back onto Elon Musk, who is Iron Man. You know, removing the duck effect with the battery storage technology he's bringing on. Can you can you speak to that? 
Well, okay, the duck, the duck that they talk about is what's called the duck curve, that in particularly in climates like California and Arizona, where there's lots of sun, the solar panels generate a lot of energy in the daytime, and more than they actually need, more than the utilities can actually use, so that they're plants are being used less and less and less. Then at 6.30 or 7 o'clock, we all go home in the evening. The sun has got much lower and isn't generating. And suddenly there's this huge demand as everybody goes home and turns on their stoves and their big TVs and, and everything. And so there's this these two points up there, and they say it's sort of shaped like a duck in the morning and in the afternoon, these huge peaks where the utilities have such a problem in uh, meeting demand. They have to have all the, in Ontario where we live, they have all the gas peaker plants that have to start firing up for the evening rush. Everything's concentrated at those ends. And the more, the, the more solar and renewable energy that comes on, particularly solar, the worse it gets. The less demand in the middle of the day, the more demand at either end of the day. So the wonderful thing in Australia, they had a terrible, terrible problem with this. And they were getting brownouts at six o'clock. They couldn't meet the demand. Coal plants don't fire up and go down that quickly. And they had a lot of coal plants. So in fact, Elon Musk made a bat, a $50 million bat, and put in this giant plant full of batteries to basically kill the duck, as we call it. Basically, the electricity from the solar panels goes into the batteries, and between 6 and 7 o'clock at night, those battery packs of his can can provide the power needed for 30,000 houses. And this is what's going to happen more and more. In Ontario, they just bought a giant battery plant because they were putting in this new Eglinton Avenue streetcar line, subway line, LRT, I don't know what the right term is. And it was going to have huge demand at the end of the day as well. And they decided, okay, we're not going to build another gas plant. They've been enough problems for us here. They're buying a battery plant to do it. You know, the whole government in Ontario almost lost power because everybody so objected to these little gas plants that were so sensible. You've got power demand here. You put a little plant here. It goes on when we needed it. Everybody hated the gas plants. And they cost the government billions of dollars to basically cancel them and move them and do this. Whereas if they just waited a year or two, they could have bought these innocuous, safe, pollution-free battery plants, solved their problem. They were just a few years ahead of the time of trying to modernize the system and have these quick electric gas plants when they could have had batteries. It's a shame. So this is the future. We're not going to see all these peaker plants. We're going to see big batteries doing the job. And this is the thing I used to object to. I still object to the concept of net zero that so many people are building houses and they're saying, oh, we're net zero. We generate enough power from our solar panels in the summer and we buy it back in the winter. And I say, well, that means we have to have a whole electrical system built, designed, maintained with generating plants and with wiring and everything to support you in December and January and February because you have, and yet you're not paying for power in July, August and September because the sun is there because you've got the money to put your own rooftop solar on. Meanwhile, the poor guy in the apartment building who is renting, he's subsidizing you all year. The whole structure of people who don't have roofs, I mean, I, rooftop solar is basically only works if you're lucky enough to have a rooftop. So if you're in multifamily, if you're in high density with little rooftops, you can't take advantage of this. And that's the fundamental flaw I find with net zero. It doesn't say build a really efficient house. It says right. buy enough solar panel to compensate for the amount of energy you're using. I think that we should forget net zero and we should be demanding radical building efficiency. We should be building houses that don't need to use very much power at all that you can run for a couple of hundred watts. And then, then we can afford to maintain a grid. Then you know they can do what they have to do instead of everybody creating their own little thing and saying, oh, it's dark out. I want to buy power today. Saying, well, no, we don't have a system that works that way. And I think the further we go to net zero, the more trouble we're going to get in. That uh, you, We got the money shot there, right? That's the first time I've heard a passionate objection to net zero. 
And kudos on that because I couldn't agree more with what you said. And I think, you know, there's evangelism around net zero, rightly so, right? Because it's, it's not a bad idea, but the implementation is problematic, as you've said, right? So there's too much evangelization and not enough going into the outcome and the consequences, right? Yeah. Now, in Toronto, I was at a thing there a few weeks ago where people who live downtown are developing cooperatives, recognizing not everybody has a south or west-facing roof. So they're getting together and they're doing group panel assemblies and group battery assemblies, which is the start of doing it right. But I still think no matter what, there's the fundamental problem that you can't just balance generation and demand. You've got to reduce demand. You've got to significantly cut demand. And once you do that, then we've got Niagara Falls, we've got Pickering, we've got Darlington, we've got Bruce, you know, we can, then the baseload can cope with it. And we don't need to, and we don't have this problem that we're always going to have in January and February if we keep going and saying net zero instead of radical building efficiency. Yeah, radical building efficiency. That's it. So basically, again, it's all about the aggregate coming down, right? Yes. And the other thing about radical building efficiency that I really want to get into because I see it's getting late is everything I learned from certain Robert Bean about uh oh uh oh danger danger <laughs> the issues of comfort. The thing is, is that again we're hitting into we're going to be hitting into big problems. The biggest thing that people care about is now is health. Health is Absolutely. the big thing that I think energy efficiency doesn't drive anybody because. Energy is cheap. And if you tell someone we're going to build you an R40 wall because you're going to save energy, they're going to say, well, it's going to take me 30 years to pay off the investment in that R40 wall. But if you tell them we're going to give you an R40 wall because you're going to be really comfortable sitting next to it because there's this really complex thing, more complicated than Bitcoin, if you ask me, (laughs) called mean radiant temperature, which nobody understands. It's definitely worse than blockchain to wrap your head around. And but as I finally, by reading all of Robert's stuff, said, wow, this is really important. This is key. This is fundamental. And yet you can talk to 50 mechanical engineers and installers and everything like that. And they, they look at you like you have two heads when you start talking about that. So this is why fundamentally, again, I go from net zero because net zero doesn't mean anything for comfort. It doesn't mean anything for resilience, for what happens right. when systems break down. Yep. These are the things that we have to worry about, comfort and resilience, not just the cost of energy, which is not a factor that people care about anyway. Yeah, well said, Lloyd. You know, it's interesting because when you look at current research work is suggesting, and Rocky Mountain Institute published a document here recently, I think it was a year ago, 70% of all people that did whole home renovations, it was done to improve comfort. That same statistic is now falling out of other research projects around the world. So you have people saying, we're doing change because we want to improve comfort, but we have government and academia saying, no, you need to do it for energy. And I think as soon as government and academia understand what people want, we'll achieve the end. The end result is the same. Absolutely, of course. How How we get there is a communication issue. And it's, and it's about listening to what people are doing. It's not that complicated. You know, if, if they're saying we're doing it for comfort and that results in energy efficiency, then run with it. Why swim upstream? They're already telling you which direction to go, right? It's and anyone who, lived, anyone who lived through the blackout here, the ice storm of a couple of years ago, where everybody was freezing in their houses for seven days, and I had to go rescue my mother-in-law from Scarborough because there it was out for a week and we were only out for two days, would think you're crazy not to be worried about resilience. I mean, if you build a properly super insulated house, the temperature goes out and you can go a whole week and not worry about it. Right. And yet we're still building this stuff that loses all the heat in an hour. If you look at some of the glass condos that they're, they're still building, that, you know, they're not survivable. So I just would like all our listeners to know that Robert was banging the table when he was speaking and Lloyd's getting very animated here. So <laughs> there's something going on. Yes. <laughs> I think we've hit a nerve here. <laughs> Excellent. No, I, I agree 100%. So the question is then, the question is, all three of us are not going to disagree on this, right? How do we change things? How do we get the message out there? 
Well, I think the first thing that you do is do what they're doing in Europe, which is they're setting standards for the building codes that are so high that that's what people get. If you go to Belgium, it's not exactly what Passive House is, but it's so close as to be identical that basically you cannot build anything that isn't built to that standard. And they're tightening up the standards all the time in in Canadian provinces, but they've really got to go radically much, much further. Everybody says, well, we can't do that because of the cost of housing and that. But, you know, it's... So you build a little smaller and a little more efficient. You don't spread it all out. If you build smaller, you can get higher performance. You have lower demand just because there's less area. But, you know, this people are going to have to make a trade-off if you want. When we have so much money to invest in your house, you're going to get 1,500 square feet instead of 2,200 square feet. But it's going to be a good 1500 square yeah, for feet. Our, um, for our listeners who are not got the experience of living in North America, I mean, there is Canada has 10 provinces, two territories, America has 51 states. So this is, these are like multiple countries, right? So the politics of getting any change into a building code has to go through federal level, local level, municipal level, and the lobbying by the supply chain and the construction industry is phenomenal. So the reason a country like the UK or Denmark can change because it's easier because A, there's a culture that supports it and B, the lobbying and the politics around it are way less toxic than they are here. So this is where I'm pessimistic in North America. There's so, the cynic in me sees the lobbying, the corruption, the cronyism, and you know, by the time a good idea gets down to building code level, it's it, it starts off as a stallion and looks like a three-humped camel. And I find it hard. Again, you know, how does that change? It comes from young people or people just ignoring that and doing something else, right? But then the knowledge has to be out there. So if there is a standard they can go to, like Passive House, they can choose to do that, right? Well, and I think we're seeing it more and more in that, you know, if you go into some of these glass condos in Toronto, which has a much more extreme temperature shift, say, than in Vancouver in that, you cannot in summer or winter use the space of the first four feet of your apartment near the window because in the winter you get freeze and in the summer you boil. And, you know, people are beginning, I think, to say, well, why would I pay for that square footage, you know, that I can't actually use? So that's really good. Lloyd? That's, that's that's a good question. What's the construction costs in uh, Toronto? Oh, I have no idea. I'm out of but, touch. Are we talking? Are we talking like three hundred dollars a square foot, two hundred fifty dollars a square foot? Adam, do you have? I haven't looked guess at it for a while. I used to use a website from BTY.com, who are surveyor, chart surveyors in Canada, and they publish construction costs. I think it's around three hundred, north of three hundred. I'd say. So I just I'm doing a quick calculation here. That's. 240,000. So if you assume a four foot area you can't use and you say that wall is 20 foot long at $300 a square foot, that's $24,000 that you can't use that you spent. Yeah, you could have you could have bought vacuum glass for that. You, know? <laughs> you could have done anything with Absolutely. that kind of money. If people start thinking that way, you know, how do I make it comfortable? How much smaller could my house be if I could actually sit next to the window or next to the wall? And uh, if you started talking to people that way, then I bet we could make a bit of a difference. We yeah, we need that. That should be a metric in building design. What is the cost of area that you can't use but you paid for? Right. Well, that goes right back to the stupidity of the plans that are so poorly designed and so inefficient, the stupidity of two-story entry halls and all the wasted area up there. I read a great (laughs) article that an architect in Duluth, Minnesota wrote for the AIA, and I just wrote about it yesterday, that she called it invisible sustainability. That Mm. instead of, she actually, when I first read it, I actually thought she was stealing the idea of Passive House and putting a new label on it. But no, what she was doing was depoliticizing it because everybody, you know, so many people are afraid of Passive House. Architects are afraid of Passive House. You know, they think it's sort of nerds, number nerds rather than than design. And she just said, no, everybody should just 
have a really good building envelope, really good windows, really compact, simple form. You don't need to hang out a shingle saying, I'm sustainable. You make it invisible, just build it right in. And I looked at what she was proposing and I laughed because it's exactly what was done in Saskatchewan in 1975 with right. the Saskatchewan Conservation House. You know, they weren't yeah. passive house. They weren't any standard. They were just saying, what do you do? that makes sense in this climate. And they did it. And if we all just did that, then you know we wouldn't have all these problems that yeah, we this have. This goes to one of my theories. I always just tell clients this. The best, the key sustainable design concept is persistence of performance. So a triple glaze window performs persistently and consistently with zero maintenance, right? This, so you're right, you've got to clean it, right? So the best, the best sustainability techniques or design effects are the ones that are embedded and you can't see them. The visual affirmations, you know, like the chocolate box, uh, I've got a windmill on my house, oh, good for you. It's bullshit, right? (laughs) Absolutely. There are systems that break down. There are systems that people don't understand how to maintain. You know, and I would even argue with you about the triple glazed windows, because, in fact, when you look at them over 15 years, the Krypton and the Argon leaks out of them and their performance drops over time. So it's not only are they triple glazed windows, but it's how much window do you have? Is it a wall of window or do you do what my architecture professor taught me that they do in in Japan in the sort of all the great traditional 16th century houses is a window frames of you. A window isn't a wall. A window is a picture frame. And you make the picture frame as big as you need to be to frame a view, to give you the amount of light you need and the connection to the outside. But no, I don't, you know, again, if you look at the open building concept about uh, how long different components of a building last, particularly modern windows, they're not going to last forever. They've got to be replaceable. And got to be controlled in size. They're also the most expensive component in the house. This is why they're not adopted. I, I blame Miles van der Rohe and his pavilions. They're things of beauty, and I want one, but, you know, <laughs> practically not great. Yeah, I was going to say, this, one of the things this conversation reminds me is that quote from Upton Sinclair. He says, you know, it's, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Oh, yeah. That's the construction industry in a word, in a sense. Absolutely, hands down. That, you know what? That's a good way to wrap up because we're coming up on the hour. Lloyd, have you got anything you want to wrap up with? Any big picture thoughts? Oh, I think we've covered. I can't think of anything <laughs> else to say. <laughs> I've really enjoyed talking with you, but the thing I really liked was your objection to net zero. I was scribbling like a crazy person as you were speaking <laughs> there. That was great. So, Lloyd, where can people, uh, where's the best place on social media and online for people to connect with you and see see what you're up to? I spend far too much time on Twitter at just Lloyd Alter, L-L-O-Y-D-A-L-T-E-R. And I do most of my writing on treehugger.com. But every morning, every Monday morning, I write about aging boomer issues on the Mother Nature Network. So <laughs> you can go there. Okay, well, I'm all in on that as an aging boomer myself, so I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, Robert, any any final thoughts? Lloyd, when I saw you on stage a few years ago, I knew uh, we had to get you uh, on a, some way to get you into a space where I could uh, talk to you more. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. So what did you make of that, Robert? <laughs> I loved it. Lloyd will stand up against the status quo, which is great. And... He sees things from a very, I think, from a, a good, a very practical way. And as I said earlier, like he's not afraid to admit when he's wrong or when he changes his views. But he, when he, when he puts his foot in the sand, it's well founded on good, deep thought. He's a deep yeah. thinker. Yeah, I get that. I, I really enjoyed it. I, his rant on net zero was just worth it, just for that. <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah, and and I think if we actually had more time, and you know, maybe we'll, then we get him on again, we'll talk about that. I mean, the principles of net zero, I think, are are good, and it's and it's DNA. I got its root. There's some good information, or good stuff that we can build on. But he's right on terms of a, a macro scale. Having a few net zero homes does not serve society in the long term. A net zero home is virtue signaling. It's like a beta level male coming out and saying he's a social justice warrior and a feminist. Right, it's the same right. thing. It's all yeah. showbiz. Yeah. What matters is 
what happens at scale, right? What happens at government? That's what matters. You know, I'd love a net zero house, but all I would be, that's the same as me having a Porsche, right? I'm just virtue signaling that I'm a sexy dude, really. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm not anyone who's listening. So, you know, again, that's my take on it. But just uh, for our listeners as well, we're talking with Lloyd about coming on next year and doing an episode just on designing houses for aging baby boomers. Now, if you're young, I'm rolling your eyes on that thought. Think about this. If you're entering the workforce now in any way related to property development, this is going to be a property development theme for the next 10 or 20 years. How do we deal with old people in their homes and in their late life? Yeah. Right? So if you think it don't affect you, think again. This is going to be a big property theme. Right. And that's, you know, we, I mean, elders, taking care of our elders is is part of that. And when you think about where people want to die, they spend their last days, they don't want to do it at an institution. They want to do it at home. But we don't build houses with institutional specs. We build them with code specs. And codes, you know, the minimum becomes maximum. That's that's their law with codes. And so the houses you want to die in, chances are they're not built for end-of-life care. And I think Lloyd, Lloyd would have a really good perspective on that, I think. Yeah, so I think we'll be following up with Lloyd next year on that for yeah. sure. So I yeah. think that's... I love some of his comments, the rubble club. <laughs> the rubble club, that is brilliant. So <laughs> yeah. I was I was back in London in September this year and I walked around the city of London. Now London's an unusually dynamic property market because the, the rents are so high and the economics are that you build a skyscraper, put it down in 25 years and build another one and everyone makes money. So yeah. I walked around London and there were several jobs. I'm in the rubble club for maybe up to seven or eight projects because I started working <laughs> in 1980 <laughs> in London. Wow, wow. And I walked around London and I hardly recognised it. I haven't been there for a long time. And there were, I am definitely in the rubble club, <laughs> way in. But that's interesting. I'm going to put a link to that. Oh, if there is such a, if, there, if they've got a website, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because that was funny. Yeah. I thought his comment. I thought it was hilarious. I thought his comments on six-story wood frame construction was really bang on, and I think he really drew in a nice conclusion. Like when you look at Denmark, Copenhagen is a, is a, it was a great tie into that. That the whole urban development and and how the Danes have developed those that culture around a central community and people be able to walk and you know housing above the stores below. It's just it's a it's a great culture they have. I'm always in awe of the Danes. And so I thought that was good. Talking about moving from bubble to bubble, I thought about the Truman Show. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ruling our own reality, right? Yeah. It's and really, it's that's kind of what it's all about. That's what's happening to our society. Yeah. You know, we have our own little bubble. We're on our own little Truman Show. Yeah, for sure. And and the other thing I've come to realize as I get older is culture is it, it's everything, right? Because what is wrapped into culture? Politics, religion, people, all their bullshit yeah. rolled in together, economics. you know, economics, money, how money's spent and not spent, it all yeah. aggregates into culture, right? And it expresses itself. This is why Brits are Brits and Americans are Americans and Canadians are Canadians and, you know, and Arabs are Arabs and everyone's themselves. Yeah. So how do you change culture? Well, you don't change it immediately, right? It's like an ocean liner. It changes slowly. Right. And yeah. So, you know, take the bike riding thing, you know. So in the 70s, what's that? Nearly two generations away now, right? It took two generations to increase bike riding from 5% up to a significant number of people to affect things. So even if we start now with great intentions in North America, it's a generation away. Yeah. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't start, right? Yeah. All of these things we have to start. What's the saying, you know, the the journey of a million miles or a thousand miles begins with one step? Something That's along the Mousy tongue. Mouse said that, yeah. Is that right? Each journey starts with a single step. Yeah. Yeah, and and that, in many ways, that's what we're that's where right now it's our 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 world is we're taking steps in many directions. Yeah, at, at the moment things are polarized, right? Because everyone's in there, got their team, and then they got to go for their guy in their team. And the trouble with that approach is you have to accept all the bad things with your team if you're a team player, right? Whereas what we need is people to act on what they believe, get a little bit out of their comfort, use the bike more. Don't buy the tracked house. Buy a smaller house that's got a bit more going for it in terms of insulation and performance, right? Make a choice because it's the choices you make with your money that signal what comes, right? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm smoking too much weed. Well, no, no I, I think it's – no, it's – I mean that whole principle 
has application in all in all types of areas. And so if you think about industry, for example, right? Industry starts out with a few players. They realize they need an association. So they all become members of the association. They all pay into the association. And now the association creates the standards. It creates the culture. And everybody has to play by that culture. But it never changes until the outlier shows up. Right? And it's the outlier that creates the change. The the industry doesn't change. The associations don't change. It's the person on the outside who can't oftentimes can't get in. He can't become part of the boys' club or the or the girls' club, right? They won't let him in. So he says, Well then screw you. Yeah. That's you know, Elon all, Musk, right? That's Elon Musk. That's Elon Musk and cars, yeah. Yeah. I you don't want me. Great. I'll just go and do this then. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. So he is a changer, but he's a change in the form of a wrecking ball, right? You know, you get in his way. He's he's how he hasn't been assassinated. I don't know how many people are angry with him. Electricity industry, the car industry, the car yeah. dealership industry. You know, yeah. on it goes. Distribution. I Distribution, mean, every- right? Yeah. If I was him, I would have two Navy SEALs following me everywhere because you know, money. If half of his stuff comes off, it disrupts. The energy industry, it disrupts the car industry, right? When I mean disrupt, I mean job losses and changes in capital investment are necessary, right? Yeah. And they, incumbents do not take that lying down. So I don't know. Personally, I think he's a national treasure and he should be guarded 24-7. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. anyway, I think that's all I've got for now. How about you? Yeah, that's it. I'm... I'm, I don't know about you, but I have to take a little bit of time off uh, here, and uh, I'm going to uh, sit back, relax. I've got a few things I got to write for, uh, you know, the coming uh, periods. And other than that, I just, yeah, I'm going to reflect on what we've learned in these last uh, dozen interviews. We've, we've, Adam, we've had some awesome people on and some just incredible wisdom. We've got to get the message out there, right? Because for things to change, the message has to get out, and then people have to take yeah. that message on. So, you know, that's part of the mission here, I think. So anyway, awesome, awesome interview. Looking forward to having him on again. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time.